This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... It's about the risk of leaving life and death decisions to a machine process. Um, our view is that an algorithm shouldn't decide who lives or dies. What if a weapon is used and developed without the mean for human control? What are the consequences of it? How do you do you ascribe responsibility if you trust what the machine is telling you to do? Do you hold the commander responsible who, who uh, once initiated or activated the weapon system? There's what we call an accountability gap when it comes to killer robots. I'm very much afraid that if we don't have a treaty within 10 years, we will be too late. Technology is progressing at a much faster pace than diplomacy is doing, and I, I fear the worst. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks. Now, long and complicated negotiations are underway, right here in Geneva, in fact, over how to regulate lethal autonomous weapons sometimes called killer robots. They're weapons that can go out, find targets, attack and kill them without humans being directly involved. In August and now again in September, UN member states are meeting to try to decide if a treaty is needed to control these weapons or even ban them. Their decision will be presented to the UN Conference on Conventional Weapons, or CCW, at the end of this year. Now, as we know, there are already rules of war, the Geneva Conventions. The International Committee of the Red Cross is the guardian of the conventions. So who better to ask first about the possible risks of autonomous weapons than the ICRC's senior policy advisor, Neil Davison, who's representing the Red Cross at the negotiations. Well, the main risks come from the way they function. So autonomous weapons, after they've been turned on, they select and apply force without human intervention. So they're triggered by their environment. So critically, the user doesn't actually choose what they're fired at, when they fire, or exactly where they fire. And that brings a number of risks. Firstly, difficulty in anticipating or controlling their effects. So there are inherent risks to civilians in that. Also risks of conflict escalation. From a legal perspective, humans must apply the rules of international humanitarian law, the law of war, um, in carrying out attacks. And they must make those context-specific judgments to apply those rules. So weapons that function in this way complicate that. And the third aspect is really the ethical concerns. It's about the risk of leaving life and death decisions to a machine process. Um, our view is that an algorithm shouldn't decide who lives or dies. That is a chilling concept, and one that has aroused huge concern among arms control and human rights groups. That skill is all AI. It's flying itself. Campaigners in favour of a ban produced this video, highlighting some of the possible consequences of uncontrolled lethal autonomous weapons. Inside here is three grams of shaped explosive. Called slaughter bots, the video shows swarms of drones which seek out individuals, students, demonstrators, activists, and kills them. Did you see that? It sounds like science fiction, 
something that could never actually come true. The nation is still recovering from yesterday's incident, which officials are describing as some kind of automated attack. But when I talked to campaigners Mary Wareham of Human Rights Watch and Frank Slipers of the disarmament group PAX, they assured me the danger was very real. For the campaign to stop killer robots, which I coordinate, this is an incredibly serious subject. We're trying to prevent uh, the loss of meaningful human control in warfare. Uh, we're trying to retain it uh, going forward. And we see many investments that are happening today into autonomous weapon systems, but that's just the beginning of what could be a very dark path. Uh, so six months after we launched the campaign, nations began to discuss this topic here at the United Nations in 2013. So, but... Frank, what we saw, okay, the listeners can't see it, but the, the concept of swarms of things that look like, you know, small birds, but vicious, flying around shooting people. Is this, is this a possibility? Oh, yes, very much. And, and actually, I had uh, more than one friend who, uh, when, when seeing this, uh, this video on YouTube, actually took quite a while until they realized that this was science fiction. I mean, the video, and, and you have to, to watch it, uh, starts a bit as a TED talk and where someone demonstrates uh, a drone that can attack a person. And, I mean, the further the video goes, the more science fiction it maybe gets. But it also shows how something looking very realistically isn't that far away from what we're uh, knowing as, as warfare currently today. That's why the campaign to stop killer robots is uh, calling for a prohibition on fully autonomous mm. weapons, but we're very much focused on what uh, the Red Cross has called the critical functions of weapon systems, which is the selection and identification of a target and then the use of force against it, lethal or otherwise. Those are the two critical functions that we want to see remain under meaningful human control going forward. It's a, in essence the status quo. It's what we have right now and we're asking why do we have to move forward uh, and, and, and uh, create fully autonomous weapons. But if, if at the end of the day it's just uh, ground robots, air robots, robots killing each other... Isn't that better or is that a stupid question? Well, is it? I mean, I work for Human Rights Watch and I support our research and there's no such thing as a clean battlefield. There are always going to be civilians in the area. And you look at warfare today, most of it is fought in towns and in cities. And imagine sending in uh, an autonomous uh, machine that is weaponized uh, and programming it to go out and attack and to kill uh, in such a cluttered environment, as the technologists like to say. Uh, you know, self-driving cars at the moment are operating in quite strict parameters and you have so much unpredictability in warfare. It moves, it can move fast as well. There are so many unknowns. So trying to program into a machine the laws of war or ethics is a really major task right now and it's not possible and it may not be possible for decades to come. But in the meantime, the stupid AI and the emerging tech is already being incorporated into weapon systems. Le rapport est adopté. The last meeting of state parties of the CCW decided to launch a working body of the CCW on lethal autonomous weapon system. For me, the issues raised by Mary and Frank seem valid arguments for having a treaty to at least control these new weapons. But arms control negotiations are typically long and complicated. So how likely is an agreement on these new weapons? Paula Gaeta is a law professor at Geneva's Graduate Institute. 
and she's made a special study of lethal autonomous weapons. The question you ask, Imogen, is a tricky one. Um, as a student, uh, I've learned uh, while studying the laws of warfare that whenever it comes to treaties uh, uh, regulating weapons, uh, the agreement is easily done with uh, weapons which are the weapons of the poor, of the poor countries. While when it comes to weapons with high technology, which are keen to big countries, then the treaties are difficult to be made. So history tells us that the prospect of a good treaty regulating lethal autonomous weapons are quite scant. If a treaty will be reached, then I bet it will be loosely formulated. What do you see the main stumbling block? are to a treaty. I mean, from what I've read, it looks to me as if all of the countries which are developing them have reservations about a treaty. They certainly don't want a full ban. Yes, certainly. They don't want to have a full ban, first of all. The usual argument is made that that these would be smart weapons, that they will diminish losses of human beings on the battlefield. Economically, they are also convenient because, I mean, instead of paying the pension of the widow of a soldier dying on the battlefield, uh, these weapons are have some advantages economically. And indeed, those arguments in favour of autonomous weapons, they can do the fighting instead of living, breathing soldiers. There will be fewer casualties and, as Paola pointed out, for the government finances, fewer widows' pensions to pay. All can seem attractive. What do you think? You can let us know by emailing us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch. I wanted to know what the ICRC thought. Surely the prospect of fewer deaths might be attractive. Neil Davison again. What we would say is that in order to apply the rules to protect civilians and comply with the law and to do that in an ethically responsible way, it's better to know more about what you're attacking, uh, the risk to civilians around it, uh, so that you can control those effects. Autonomous weapons pull in the other direction because they trigger themselves. You know less about what's going to happen. And we think that as a whole, is a dangerous trajectory for weapons development. So the ICRC position then is that this is not a weapon that can be governed under existing Geneva Conventions. We we need a new law. Well, our view is that it's already covered by existing rules. Existing rules already set quite strict constraints on the development of autonomous weapons and their use. But it doesn't have all the answers. And we believe certain autonomous weapons that pose the greatest risk should be entirely prohibited. Unpredictable autonomous weapons and anti-personnel autonomous weapons, those that target people. We recommend the rest should be strictly regulated with certain constraints. Uh, In our view, currently, these recommendations reflect current military practice. So um, we can draw a line here effectively and address the risks in a practical way. So the ICRC wants what it calls meaningful human control. But how can there be control over a weapon that is, by definition, autonomous? Or does that mean that what the ICRC really wants is a ban? For lawyers like Paula Gaeta, these tricky definitions are very important. And the fact they're being argued over right now here in Geneva is a signal to her 
that the chance of a total ban is very slim. I don't think that we will ever reach a total ban. If we reach this total ban, it will be without the countries developing those weapons, as it is the case for nuclear weapons. It's not a treaty to which the big countries, nuclear countries, are party to. And a treaty regulating the use of lethal autonomous weapons, a high probable, perhaps, with the principle of meaningful human control. But what does it mean to exercise meaningful human control? I mean, it doesn't mean much because uh, any time you sell this technology, you sell it with people being able to rely on it. So if you use your Google map telling you which way to go, then you rely on Google, Google map. You don't stop every minute to asking uh, where I'm going. I mean, of course, this is technology that is, is developed to be reliable and to be used. If it is adopted, the treaty will be adopted along these lines, but then it will be the task of lawyers to see what it means in practice. And secondly, what if a weapon is used and developed without the meaningful human control? What are the consequences of it? Yeah, I mean, who do you prosecute? You can't prosecute a robot for war crimes. Indeed, you can't. And to tell you the truth, I'm studying now the criminal responsibility of individuals, uh, the human operators of those uh, weapons. And still, you have problems, even if the person exercises meaningful human control, you might have problems and obstacles ascribing criminal responsibility because the person could say, well, I did not exercise meaningful human control because I trusted what the machine was doing. I didn't mean to not exercise the meaningful human control. I trusted the technology. I mean, how do you ascribe responsibility if you trust what the machine is telling you to do? The United Nations has found massive evidence pointing to the Syrian government's involvement in war crimes and crimes against humanity. Accountability is a huge issue with autonomous weapons. In recent years, with the advent of special tribunals, the International Criminal Court and universal jurisdiction, We've seen more prosecutions for war crimes. But what if it's not a human, but a robot, that has done the actual killing? Mary Wareham and Frank Slipers acknowledge the difficulties. Well, you could try and prosecute the programmer, but that's not really going to work. You could try and hold the manufacturer accountable, uh, but we've also looked at this uh, from a legal perspective and it's extremely challenging. Do you hold the commander responsible who, who uh, once initiated or activated the weapon system? Uh, there's what we call an accountability gap when it comes to killer robots. Do you actually know who the producer is or who's been the developer or who's been uh, the, the commander? So um, that makes it probably even more. And, and that's why we've also raised that question that that is a, bi a big issue, uh, accountability. First Geneva Convention of 1864, setting the basic limits on how wars can be fought. These universal laws of war protect those not fighting, as well as those... Again and again in this discussion, I come back to those Geneva Conventions and their prohibition of attacks on civilians. The more I hear about lethal autonomous weapons, the more it seems impossible they would actually be able to respect the conventions. So why, I ask Neil Davison, doesn't the ICRC go all out and call for a total ban, as it did with nuclear weapons? We base our recommendations on human legal obligations, human ethical responsibilities, so that no matter how the technology develops, the responsibilities of those carrying out that conflict remain the same. 
that's why we think our recommendations are actually future proof in that sense. What we're offering is what we think is a clear, pragmatic and principled approach, recommendations that can work, that can work based on the realities of conflict today, but also the realities of uh, current weapons, realities of the risks. So what we are concerned about, though, is that current trends in military technology development mean some of these boundaries may be crossed. Currently, existing autonomous weapons are very limited in their use. They're used, for example, to target objects such as incoming missiles for limited time periods, limited areas. Measures are taken to make sure civilians aren't present. They're supervised by people. But what we're seeing is interest in targeting a greater range of objects, uh, targeting people, use in wider areas for longer periods in cities and towns with reduced supervision by people and worryingly uh, a reliance on AI and particularly machine learning to control those systems. Governments around the globe have set their eyes on the world's largest tech companies. But how did big tech come under so much fire? And how did it get so big in the first place? And that's the other thing I'm becoming more and more conscious of in this debate. Technology is racing ahead faster than the diplomatic negotiations and way ahead of existing international law. New technology is big business these days. Just look at the explosion of social media and how unprepared we were for the negative ways it could be used. So what about the big tech companies? Are they open to discussing the fears over autonomous weapons? Would they consider putting some prohibitions on how the technology they develop can be used? Frank and Mary again. Within PAX, we've done a lot of work over the past 10 years engaging, for example, the financial sector and, and how they invest their money. And we've been very successful in uh, dissuading financial institutions in, in putting money into nuclear weapons uh, producing companies. And uh, we see the same interest from these financial institutions who have developed policies on these issues, uh, co corporate social responsibility policies that they want to know from us that, hey, how, how do you look at this development in, in the area of autonomous weapons and how do you um, define companies that are working in this area? So, uh, and, and we're talking with them and they're very interested. Do any of these companies also come to the CCW and lobby or are they keeping a low profile? I mean, uh, some of them have accepted invitations to come here. Google DeepMind uh, has come and presented many various artificial intelligence experts and roboticists. Uh, the campaign uh, has brought uh, technology workers from some companies, including tech workers who've quit their jobs, uh, to, to the UN to engage with the governments. But we don't really have them sitting at the back of the room with the Google nameplate. We don't really have the Lockheed Martin sitting at the back of the room with the nameplate. They know that it's the government's responsibility to regulate and that they will do what the governments decide. Uh, but Google certainly got in a lot of PR trouble last year when it was revealed that it was working on a Department of Defense contract called Project Maven. And the, they were tasking the computer programmers and the other experts inside Google uh, with, with sifting, helping to sift through thousands of hours of footage shot by surveillance drones over various countries to try and determine uh, if they could uh, pick out objects. And I wrote a letter saying, how can you, you know, assure us that the search for objects isn't going to turn into one a search for targets uh, to use lethal action against? Is there a sense, though, or do you sense that the companies are 
wanting some guidelines from states? I think it depends a bit. I think some companies like to hide, be, like to hide behind uh, the state that they want the state to develop uh, those guidelines or prohibitions or whatever. Um, but I mean, for for the research we did, we also were in touch with companies who got back to us and say, no, we we have our own responsibility and we make sure that um, there is always a human in control over this this system, and we we've developed a policy for it, and um, we actually also demanded from our customers that uh, they will not use the type of technology we develop for um, purposes with no human control. So. With some companies, there's a clear awareness, and, and we hope that with the sort of advocacy we do, more and more companies will develop policies in that direction. We'll also have discussions within the company about the type of new developments they're working on, and um, we hope that that would contribute to more of awareness within uh, the, the private sector. As we said at the start of today's programme, Disarmament negotiations are traditionally long and complicated. The talks around autonomous weapons are no different. So how likely is it that, by the December conference, we'll see agreement on the need for a treaty? Neil Davison, who is inside the negotiating room, seems optimistic. Well, it's encouraging. There are proposals, concrete proposals coming in for how to regulate autonomous weapons from states, groups of states, from civil society, from ICRC. And, you know, there's a lot of overlap. There's increasing agreement that certain types of autonomous weapons need to be prohibited and others need to be regulated. Clearly, there's a lot of work to do over these coming weeks in the lead up to December. It's hard to see what the outcome will be, but there's a real opportunity. So I'm staying positive at this stage. But Paula Gator who knows her disarmament history very well, is less hopeful. My understanding was that they have to mandate to the Conference on Conventional Weapons to try to reach a treaty. And if not, then this treaty should be perhaps reached somewhere else outside the conference. So by December, I agree with you, Imogen, it's utterly unlikely that we will have a treaty. Machines that have the power and the discretion to take human lives are politically unacceptable, are morally repugnant and should be banned by international law. Increasingly, despite support for control of autonomous weapons from the United Nations Secretary-General himself, there is doubt that the UN is going to be able to reach agreement. Mary Wareham and Frank Slipers know very well that In order to get the conventions banning landmines and cluster munitions, the negotiations had to be taken out of the UN process and agreed separately among like-minded states. I mean, the United Nations is the place that we come to to, for the governments to meet. It's the the home that we come to. Uh, And I think it's important to remember that one year ago, the United Nations Secretary-General He called for a ban on fully autonomous weapons. He called such weapons morally repugnant and politically unacceptable and basically offered the services of the UN to negotiate international law on this. So the United Nations is firmly behind the call for regulation, uh, but the consensus-based forum is what is the struggle here. Therefore, it's 
more than likely that there will be an outside process, either launched through the United Nations in New York uh, or by a bold political leader, a foreign minister, uh, and a small group of states, which will then grow into a big process and create the treaty. Frank. I'm very much afraid that if we don't have a treaty within 10 years, we will be too late, that within 10 years, looking at how developments technologically have gone and and examples that we see, um, technology is progressing at a much faster pace than diplomacy is doing. And if they don't have a treaty within 10 years' time, I, I fear the worst. That brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva, but most definitely not to the end of the debate around lethal autonomous weapons. We'll be returning to the topic during that big UN conference in December. In the meantime, Paula Gator's got her own podcast on the subject of autonomous weapons. You can find that on the website of Geneva's Graduate Institute. And write to us. Tell us what you think. Do we need a ban? Meaningful control? Or are these weapons actually a way to fight wars better? Email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think of the programme and check out our previous episodes. From a long, hard look at the United Nations, now it's 75, to an account of 10 years of war in Syria to the history of how the international treaties on landmines and on enforced disappearances came about. And coming up in the next few weeks, ahead of the climate summit in November, what outcome do humanitarian agencies hope for? And are we getting humanitarian work wrong? We'll be asking two experts why they think aid needs to be decolonised. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening. And do join us again on Inside Geneva. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swissinfo. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. Mm